You're listening to the Scaling Culture Podcast, where we sit down with thought leaders who share their experiences building incredible workplace cultures. Before diving into today's episode, we want to share very exciting news that our Scaling Culture Masterclass is coming out in the next four to five weeks. This is the full cycle playbook on building and maintaining a high-performing culture that Ron wished he had had 15 years ago. The masterclass covers best practices you can implement immediately to build and sustain high-performing, resilient culture. Each step in the framework is tangible, actionable, and has relatable stories, exercises, and leadership tips, some right from these very podcast interviews. To join the waiting list and see the masterclass teaser, head to scalingculture.org. Now on to the show. Our guest today is Brian Kropp, Chief of Research and Distinguished Vice President at Gartner. Brian has authored over 40 research studies at Gartner, led more than 200 strategy sessions with executive teams at Fortune 500 companies, and more than 300 executive education sessions across the globe. He's a frequent contributor to CNN, The Economist, The Financial Times, The Wall Street Journal, and other top media publications. Brian has been named to Human Resource Executive top 100 HR tech influencers and engages Lee's top 100 HR influencers list. In this episode of Scaling Culture, Ron and Brian discuss how companies that are focusing on people and talent are outperforming their competitors, how HR is now a mix between science and art, the role of the leaders of tomorrow and the new chief purpose officer and HR's drastic shift away from personnel and policy to what is the heart and soul of the company. And finally, innovative ways to compete in a tight labor market where competitors are offering 20% salary jumps. Welcome to another episode of the Scaling Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Lovett. And today I'm very excited to have Brian Kropp with us. Brian, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was um, so Brian, VP at Gartner. Before we jump into, to, uh, and, and I, I feel like today I'm excited because the topics we're going to discuss are, um, are not our typical topics. They're hot which I'm excited about and things that, that, that I certainly could learn a lot about. So that's exciting to me. I'm, I'm hope I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to drink from a fire hose today, but give us, I'll, a- I'll do my best to uphold that end of the bargain. How about that? Good, good. But give us an overview uh, for those who don't know uh, Gartner, you know, let's talk about that and a little bit on your journey. I know we've done a proper intro, but we'll give us a few minutes of who you are, Brian and, and Gartner, especially in, in the work you're doing there. Yeah, for sure. So uh, Gartner is the world's leading research and advisory company. And what that means is we work with executives across all the different functions within an organization. So IT, HR, sales and marketing, finance, and so on. And uh, we try to understand what are their common and shared challenges that they need to focus on to improve the performance of their functions, and then provide that research and advice to them through all sorts of different events, uh, documents we create, studies we write, conversations we have, data we provide, all those sorts of things. So really making sure that we're helping those executives get their jobs done within their companies through providing just the best research and advice that we can for them. And Brian, what through your own personal journey, what was your kind of aha moment, a, a moment of, wow, I really, this this space is speaking to me. I want to work. I want to help. I want to be involved in in creating better company cultures. What was your, what was your, the moment that that kind of really spoke to you and you started to lean in? Yeah, it, it was totally, um, it was totally happenstance, to be honest with you. It was like completely random. So um, I was working at the World Bank uh, when I was younger. And then a lot of my friends worked at, at this company and, um, you know, they know me and they're like, hey, this is the sort of stuff that you like to do. You like to think about ideas, et cetera. You should come interview. And so I did. 
And I came in and I was like, so the business model of this company is one company tells you what their problem is. And then you tell everybody else how to solve that problem. That, that doesn't seem to make any sense whatsoever, but the people who are working here seem to be smart and it's always good to be hanging out with smart people. And, and so I was like, okay, I'll start working here. Uh, and then I was hired into our HR practice. And I thought to myself, um, well, HR is really lame. Why in the world would anybody want to do that? Uh, but I like the people, so I'll do this for like a year or two and then move to one of our cooler practices like finance or strategy or something like that. Uh, and after maybe a year or two, there's um, two things that I realized. Uh, and I was lucky enough to have a chance to talk to a couple of different CEOs at different companies about what they do and how they spend their time. And the first thing that I realized was uh, a CEO spends 60, 65% of their time on talent and people. Like who are our leaders, how we should pay people, uh, what sort of skills do we need? And a huge part of what a CEO thinks about and focuses on are, are their people. And future leaders and who do we need? You know, oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's like, and if and when I had a chance to talk to them, and whenever they talked about something that went wrong, went wrong, it was really rare that it was like, oh, uh, we didn't have enough money to do it. Or uh, the technology didn't work. It was invariably like something happened with the leaders, the people, uh, the culture that caused it to fail. And then the second thing I, I realized after a little bit of time was um, the companies that consistently do it well, uh, year after year when they're doing it well, they get sustained better performance. Uh, and some companies do well in any given year for all sorts of reasons, but the companies that just do a much better job of managing the talent in their organization, their leaders, their employees, that whole experience over the long haul just always seem to do better. So they, so, those companies, so Brian, I just want to play that back. They're outperforming yeah. their competitors because of the focus on people. Is that what you saw? Yeah, absolutely. Like um, in, in a sustained way. So year on year, year after year, they're continuing to perform it. And, you know, you always have outliers that are the exception that prove the rule, right? But um, those companies, those CEOs that, were just a better place to work, that treated their employees better, that did a better job of selecting the right employees, that did a better job of developing those employees. Uh, over the long haul, they just always outperform. Uh, and, you know, trying to figure out why some people win and, and others don't, it's just a really interesting question to understand and take part. So that, that's a long convoluted way to, to get there. But that's interesting. But you're saying that's the headline is, is sure, that's a also sure. a broad topic. But those who did that outperform, those who focus on people, how they, you know, uh, they found the right people, screened the right people and invested in those people, um, supported them. I love that. And I, I feel we're, we're, you know, our companies are trying to do the same. So that's exciting to me. That's great. And, and it's still true of like today, right? Like, I mean, just think about everything we've experienced. Um, Companies that have treated their employees well during COVID, like gave them the right support that they needed to be successful and help those people and uh, not just in their work, but their lives. Um, those companies that made, have made decisions across the last 18 months about how they're going to treat people um, are going to perform better across the next, I mean, 36 months without a doubt. Just a question of how much. No, totally. I couldn't agree more. So, so talk to me about science and how science this mix between science and art when it comes to HR. I was, I was really curious yeah. about that. Tell me more. Yeah. So um, how we, how we do HR has changed a lot across the last 15 you know, or so years. Uh, so much of it used to be uh, personnel and like getting forms filled out and uh, really annoying, boring 
largely unhelpful legal compliance sort of stuff. Um, but across that time period, the other thing that's happened is that there's been this massive influx of data and analytics within HR. Uh, and that comes from like some of the big companies out there, like where Workday and SAP and Oracle have created things, but uh, also a ton of venture capital money going into HR tech-related companies to try to understand what motivates employees, what gets them to perform better, keeps them from quitting and so on. And, and it's a parallel that happened within the sales and marketing world and uh, with online commerce, where there's so much data that was generated in terms of how you shop online and using that data to better understand your customers has created huge profits and huge revenue growth for some companies. Now, the idea is we can apply similar types of data in analytics and knowledge, which is the science part, to our employees. And by applying all of that, we can get better, higher performing employees. However, you know, our employees happen to be human beings and human beings are, are not always the same on any given day, right? Um, and they change a lot based upon like how they're feeling. Like, you know, were they fighting with their spouse or not? Did their sports team win the night before or whatever, right? Uh, and so it's just this fascinating space where there's an enormous amount of data and science that's applied to really non-predictable human beings and that you have to have that art that goes with it. Right. So it's just so fascinating. You gotta have you gotta have both. It's not finance, right? It's not it's not right. math. No, two plus two is four, right? But 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 yeah. let's go down the science. Like what's something that you learned that you wouldn't have known until the science said at least this piece, this half of the equation? What's something that was like, wow, that's I didn't I wouldn't have thought that it changed my belief about this thing. Yeah. So so here's like a really good, interesting example, uh, just given the environment that we're in, right? So if you think back to like March, April of last year, uh, everybody, um, not everybody, lots of people moved from working in an office to working remote. And the big fear that everybody had was um, uh, uh, when people are working from home, they're just going to like sit around on their couch and like take naps and eat pizza and watch TV all day. They're not actually going to work. They're not going to do anything. And everybody was freaked out about that. But when you actually have all sorts of analytic tools to track performance, uh, how much time people are actually spending logged on, the speed at which they were responding to emails, the number of meetings that they attended, uh, feedback from customers, all sorts of things like that. What you actually find is that employee performance and hours worked were the exact opposite of what everybody feared. There's very few people that you know took naps and, and watched TV all day. The vast, vast majority of people actually worked harder and were more productive working from home than coming to an office. Right. But on the other side of that, what you also see when you look at the data part, which is super fascinating, is that in a remote or hybrid world, you actually interact with more people, but you have fewer interactions with every person. So your interactions are broader, but they're not as deep. One of the things that you also start to see when you put the, the science and the data behind it is that those social interactions and connections of employees in a remote world are a lot weaker. So while performance is the same, if not a little bit higher, the likelihood of quitting is actually dramatically higher. And so by applying the science to it, where we were worried is we have to solve a performance problem, but what we should be worried about is how we solve a retention problem because performance really isn't an issue in a remote hybrid world. And that's just a good example by applying data to it. What our gut tells us is actually wrong 
and, and we've got to do something different than we thought. It's a great, great example. And <clears throat> I think about, you know, just our, our team internally uh, and how gray things got during the pandemic. People actually just worked more. It wasn't exactly, it was exactly what you said. You know, you didn't actually have to, we, we were actually kind of a little unorthodox and limited vacation results driven, but still, you know, no one really, no one came to the office at all. And so there was still a question mark, I'll call it. But what we did, it was interesting because um, we have unlimited vacation and our results were, you know, we're still, I think our team was still crushing it. And, and, and but almost the, the pandemic, again, made things gray, made things blurry. They were working too much. There wasn't even these transition times to work and back from work, you know? So there was an extra hour and a half of work all of a sudden or whatever that was for, for someone where they walked, drove, uh, took transit. And so we actually implemented these life days and mandatory, you have to take off one day a month, which is just, just for your life. Just, you know, clean out your garage, call your grandparents, go to yoga. Just one day is mandatory now because we found unlimited vacation. Actually, people weren't even using that. They were just working all the time. Yeah. Uh, but what we didn't do, and we still need to do a better job of, is the second piece of what we talked about is, is being more intentional about the social aspects because that kind of happened unintentionally. Hey, how you doing, Brian? Well, how was your weekend? That was unintentional. We just walked by each other. And I think what you're saying is companies have to be more intentional and purposeful about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because the um, you know, when when you're not physically with people, it's like, okay, the meeting starts at 10, we start talking at 10. You don't have that like just chatting time about what's going on. You don't have those natural moments, and, and then it's like, okay. Uh, well, let's, we need like a 10 minute coffee break. So you turn off your camera, you go to your kitchen, you get coffee and you kind of grumble like back and forth and, you know, and then you walk back, but you do it by yourself. You don't have those moments when you're actually like interacting with people. And, and so, that water cooler talk, they call yeah, it. Yeah, for sure. Or, or like the happy hour after work or like talking with someone in the elevator up to the building or any of those other moments, they, they completely disappeared. Uh, and we replace them with just like frequent check-ins. So it's like, I don't get to talk to my friends, but my manager is like on me nonstop. I'm like, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? It's like, actually, I just want to talk to people about like the football game. Right? Yeah, it's really, it's it's more transactional, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. it, it tends to be in that transaction box versus just this human-to-human uh, -human contact, deep conversation. And because that relationship goes to different places. All of a sudden, you and I, Brian, we're working in the same organization. We have a little water cooler talk. We find out that we like the same team and we go to the hockey game on the Friday all of a sudden. Like that doesn't, that's not yeah, happening. For sure. for sure. You know, and, and it's like, when you think about a lot of stuff that's happened um, and, and one of, the, of the, the, you know, silver linings of a really horrible experience is some executives have realized this is a really crazy idea. This is like so out there. Like, you're going to be blown away when I say this. Uh, that the employees that we've got, they're actually human beings. They're actually like people. They're not just workers, you know? And they've got like families and hobbies and interests and like challenges. And I think one of the good things that we've started to realize throughout this process, and we need to figure out how to operationalize it, is like, how do we actually treat the people that that we work with, not just as workers, but as human beings. And you know, this idea of like making sure everybody has that day where they can go do human being stuff. And how do we just institutionalize all of that? How do we build those social connections? How do we, you know, not treat people like workers, but treat them like human beings? Like, like one, of the, one of the biggest things that I realized um, 
is saying work-life balance is dumb. And, and for a couple of reasons. Um, one, it implies that you've got work and you've got life and they're different things. What I think we realize is that people have a life as a human being and work is a component of that, much like all of the other things that are there. And what companies I think need to be thinking about now is how do we help the life of our employees where work is a component of that life, but so too is their family, their friends, their grandmother, their yoga, like the stuff you mentioned. How do we help them with their life? Not try to balance it where it's like this and that is separate constructs. It's, it's your life. Help, help, help the people that happen to work with you have a better life, not just a better job. Yeah, look, I, I couldn't agree more. We've got a, a book coming out called Scaling Culture. And in that book, we talk about the whole, like HR has moved from this performance-based Brian at work and how he or she performs to, I call it, I think we call it like whole HR, the whole human being, exactly what you're saying. And, and it's funny because I do think that companies in the past thought that was crossing a line, that kind of thought that's not our business. What happens behind your four walls is not our business. And now that is very blurry. It is our business. And, and we were just having a conversation with this at, at work the other day. And, and, you know, my position to our team was, we want to create a culture, an environment where you are the best version of yourself, the best version for your spouse, your family, your mental health, your fitness. And, and part of that, we'd like you to perform well here, but, but in life, you know? And I think that's a good perspective for companies to start thinking about because it can't be about just give me, Brian, give me your work, you know? And, uh, and, and, but I do feel, I don't know what you're seeing. You, you certainly would have a much broader, um, um, especially through the research and work you guys are doing. Are companies pivoting towards that? Is it slow? Where are we in the, you know? It, it, it's moving faster and employees are moving faster than employers on this front. So like, like here's kind of a manifestation of what you're talking about. Uh, we tell our employees to bring their whole selves to work. Because we know when you do, you're better performing, you're happier, like all those sorts of things. But then we're like, well, bring your whole self to work, but we're not going to actually talk to you about your whole self at work. It's like that that seems really hard to compute as, you know, um, uh, what you're asking of me to do. But employees now just do it, right? You're much more willing to talk about um, uh, your personal life, uh, your family life. Uh, your mental health, like a lot of those things have become um, a lot less taboo to talk about in the workplace. And, you, you know, we've got leaders that, that we tell them to be authentic leaders. And, you know, if you're an authentic leader, you talk about your struggles as well as your victories. Um, and that creates a much more humane experience, which is really, really good. And, and so employees are doing that, but they're also bringing a lot of other stuff in as well. That becomes a lot harder for HR leaders to manage. Like uh, they're bringing their politics into work. And like a super interesting data point for you, 60% uh, of employees have avoided another employee because they disagree with that employee's politics. Interesting. Right? How can you think about creating a culture where you tell people to bring their whole self to work? And part of that is their political and religious beliefs. But then you've got other employees that say, because of that person's beliefs, I'm not going to work with them. And I'm going to intentionally avoid them in my own work because of that. So what's the line, Brian? Is there, is there a line? This is very gray. And, and what, what would you, so if, if I'm the company and I've got that problem, how do you advise me through that? Yeah. Well, I think there's a couple important things to know is that the line is moving unquestionably in the direction of more 
involvement, not less. And once you've got movement in that direction, it's really hard to unpack and unwind it. So uh, you're not going to say, well, let's talk about mental health in the workplace. And then a year later, like, you know, that's no longer allowed. Like that, it's, it's not going backwards in the other direction. Uh, it is only going uh, more so at some undetermined speed to more deeper involvement, deeper relationships, deeper connections between employees and employers. Um, so, so what do you do about it? First is like realize that this is the reality. Uh, the second part is we have to uh, equip our leaders to be able to understand and appreciate and accept and embrace the high degree of variability across all of the experiences that our employees bring. So we talked a lot about kind of their, their uh, personal beliefs, their religious beliefs, their life, whatever it might be. But what's also going on is in a hybrid world, you're gonna have people working in different ways at different times in different locations, different parts of the day. Uh, and the thing that's gonna be really hard for leaders is they're gonna to have to shift how they think about things. Like historically, a leader's job was uh, get everybody aligned and rowing in the same direction. Now we've got people, and part of that is like, check yourself at the door. You know, when you're here, you're an IBM person or whatever it might be, like as the, the stereotype from like the 70s and 80s. And that, that just doesn't exist anymore. So as a leader, what you have to realize is your job has shifted from uh, getting everyone being the same and rowing in the same direction, trying to have this big giant battleship that you're trying to move, to actually now have like a, a flotilla or armada of like lots of little ships right. you're trying to get that armada to move together. And how do you get all these people with different beliefs, different mindsets, different perspectives, different approaches, different ways of working, different times of working, how do you get that all collectively moving together with that degree of variability when we no longer live in a world of sameness where you can just force people to do the same thing. Like that, that, that is, I think, gonna be one of the hardest shifts that we see across the next handful of years. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think about that. You're right. That's gonna be really challenging and, and especially in this kind of hybrid environment too, like very yeah. challenging, you know? And to not have a group that then doesn't let another group in because of their beliefs or like a small little pack within a pack. And, yeah. um, you know, we were just talking about our, we do our Friday huddle. And one thing we added last week was, um, so we go through our huddle and what was the weekly high. And then, uh, and then, and then basically one by one, our team will give gratitude to someone else on the team. And what, what, what was the connection? What was their moment of gratitude for another team members or multiple? And we're just trying to, again, be intentional about that connection about the respect among the team. Cause it, cause then is I think about us just doing that and then it's different, you know, you know um, you like the Patriots and I like a different team or you're Republican and I'm Democrat, but I'm still grateful for what you helped me do this week. Mm -hmm. And so you, you, I think that's kind of what you're talking about. Try to find commonality stuff that, that aligns people that's outside of that noise, you know, and I should call that stuff noise, but you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and I think this, this, that word that, you're intentionally picking around intentional um, is a super important word. Uh, you know, in, in a pre-hybrid world, um, we could be kind of lazy in some ways. We had, um, we had time and access to let things happen. And so just the fact that we we're all in the same place at the same time, a lot of that just naturally emerged. And now that we're not in the same place and we're at different times and we've got these different beliefs that are there, 
as a leader, one of the most important things for you to do is to say, what is the specific thing we need to do? What are the very specific intentional things I'm going to do to make it happen? And then gear your day and your week and your month around creating those intentional moments of interaction because they're just not going to happen to the same degree in a hybrid world. Uh, I'll tell you a really um, an interesting one, not to say that other companies should do it, but it teaches the point of intentionality a little bit. Yeah, please. There's a, there's a French company that we work with and um, uh, they've got a, a series of online like Pandora stations that you can listen to as an employee. What's sorry? What's a Pandora station? Oh, Pandora, like Spotify or oh, okay. yeah. of like a streaming music uh, channel. And so they've got um, uh, like a bunch of different ones and like you an employee can like, you know, pick which one you want to listen to. And so what they started to do is uh, create playlists for people. So you could listen to like, like, hey, what's Ron's listening to? This is what his playlist looks like. And so as a way to create connections there. But they pushed it one step further, which is um, within your playlist, when you put up a new playlist, as an employee, you could say, uh, this is the playlist. And here are the people that I want to thank that helped me across like the last you know month or two about what they're doing. And so you could listen to anybody else's playlist and you heard not only the music that they wanted to play, but also the acknowledgements that they had for other people. They had to know the really intentional way. And so it's creating those moments where the specific thing that you want to happen, you force it to happen. And you have to do that in a hybrid world because, like I said, we don't have the, the luxury and laziness of being in the same place at the same time where it's just going to naturally occur. We just have to, we have to design it to happen. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and the world's moving so fast now. The strategies from six months months ago in the place of that we are in the world. And you know, I've I've almost felt a few times, you know, maybe lazy is an aggressive word for this, but but I think it rings true is you you kind of we get in a new habit based on a situation and then you become a little lazy, and then you just stick with that habit versus taking a step back, saying, Well, what do we need now? Hold on, things are different. And yeah. so I've gotten lazy a few times with that, actually. I thought, oh, whoa, we used to do these deeper check-ins. There's probably, and then we kind of got away from that. We got lazy and then we brought them back because, you know, we just kind of assumed, oh, people are kind of through that phase. We, we get a little lazy at one point and we had to bring yeah. that back in. I just think we have to constantly as leaders assessing and checking the temperature of the organization, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things that I think is really interesting here about, leaders and leadership in a hybrid world is um, historically the way that a lot of leaders got stuff done in an in-person world was just this role modeling that behavior. Um, and people would see it. But in a remote hybrid world, you actually, as an employee, you see less of what you know your leader does, your manager does. Uh, you have these interactions with them that are video, but you don't see them in like their behavior in the wild. Right. You know? Like you just don't see them in their day to day, like because you're just not around them. Um, and so what you have to do as a leader is not just rely on you role modeling the right behavior, or the right approach. You have to do that, but you also have to build systems and processes and structure that show you're willing to dedicate the time, the money, the investments, the reputation, the political capital, whatever it might be, to say that this is an important thing. And you go from like your presence and your behavior that people can see to the other systems and processes that we use, which in most cases are either your budget or your calendar. Or operation. So how, are, 
Yeah. So how are you designing those things in a way that sends the message of this is what matters to us and this is what we care about, right? And like, what are the systems and processes in your organization that define what behaviors do? And leaning on those more than you ever have rather than leaning on your own power of person. I would agree. I think that culture's made this huge transition. Your core values, you know, in the early 2000s were things that sat on the wall. Now it's systems to bring that out, systems to screen for, systems to align. And, and mm-hmm. to your point, more than ever, companies has to, have to think um, strategically about their culture. You know, I always get asked, well, you know, Ron, do you think, what, what do you think about that strategies culture for breakfast? I think it's great. I think you have to be strategic about your culture. You know, yeah. I just don't think it's one or the other. Um, that's interesting. So, so Brian, I want to talk about the chief purpose officer. I know that's a topic for us today. You know, that's usually a founder thing. You know, our, 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 with Vita, uh, our residential real estate company, our purpose is revolutionize affordable communities. And I feel like I wear that hat. I'm the chief people officer and the CEO and founder today, but larger corporations have chief people officers. Tell me, tell us more about that. What are they doing? What are they focused on? And how are they executing on that? Yeah. So, um, the, the fastest growing C-suite title at companies right now is chief purpose officer. Um, and I think that's occurring for a variety of reasons. Um, they're like in no particular order. So just a, a set of really interesting things for you. Uh, about 75% of employees at large companies expect their employer to take a stand on the societal, political, cultural debates of the day. They expect them to get involved. And you know, within that 75%, uh, half wants you to go one way, half wants you to go the other way on that issue, right? Totally. Mass, uh, no mass. This is bad. <laughs> yeah, like the whole thing, like, um, you know, pro-immigration against immigration, like pro, you know, you believe in climate change or you don't, or like the list goes on and on. Um, and so those things are, are like playing out within companies and uh, uh, customers now are increasingly expect their employer to have a viewpoint on these sorts of things. And you know, I guess it was about what two years ago, two and a half years ago now, where the business roundtable came out and said that the purpose of companies is no longer just to return profit to shareholders. It's about to serve the stakeholders of a company. So the employees, the community, the shareholders, and the customers that are there. So you see all these things emerging around uh, what is it that my company stands for? What are we like? Why why are we here? And Increasingly, that answer to that question cannot be to make, not just be to make money. It has to be something different. Employees expect it, customers expect it, communities expect it, and so on. And then the question comes out, how do you do that? How do you have a purpose in a world where there's more conflict amongst people than we've seen in a couple of generations? So, so like here's, um, here's like a really specific example from last summer. Uh, when there was a lot of uh, protests for, for Black Lives Matter. Um, and one of the things that was really fascinating that came out of that is uh, that's an issue that, you know, there's different viewpoints on. And I don't want to, you know, say like wh- which is right or which is not. That's not the point of, of this, this comment. But there are different perspectives. Yeah. Um, and what a lot of CEOs did was actually a mistake. Uh, what they heard from a lot of their employees is like, oh, we should, um, we need to say something about Black Lives Matter. We need to uh, uh, say why we support it. And so a lot of CEOs went and said, 
okay, uh, I support Black Lives Matter. And then they took their logo and you know, replaced with Black Lives Matter for the day or, or things like that. And what actually happened when they did that was the engagement levels of their employees fell and employees were disappointed that they did. And at first you're like, well, that's super confusing. Yeah. Employees said they wanted it. I said I support it. And now you're more disappointed in me than you were before. But this is what actually happened. And what tends to happen on a lot of these issues is that the side that is for that issue or the side that's against that issue, let me start there, uh, is mad that you said something in favor of the thing they disagree with. Right? So that logically makes sense why they do this Yep. But the side that's in favor of that issue is disappointed with you that you just made a statement about it. Because their viewpoint is like, well, you said it's important, but you're not spending money on it. You're not spending time on it. You're not fully committing to it. You're not adjusting who our suppliers are because of this. You're not adjusting. You're not making investments in the communities. It was just a tweet. It was just a tweet. Right. And like words are cheap. Right. Uh, Now, what we also see, just to kind of finish that thought, is that the executives that not only said something, but then made real investments, made real decisions, uh, invested dollars, you know, uh, changed their customers, changed their budget, whatever. Um, those saw net increases in engagement across the workforce. And so where we're shifting from is a place where in the past, the question that executives were asking was, should I get involved? That ship has sailed. You, in most cases, you no longer have a choice but to get involved. And the question is not, should I get involved, but how do I get involved? And that's where the chief purpose officer really becomes a critical role in the company. Not only what do you get involved in, because you can't get involved in every issue that's going on, but how do you get involved in it in a way that is consistent with your values, that is aligned with your mission, it's done in a way that is respectful and inclusive and explanatory of the, to, the, to the workforce, the customers, the communities that you operate in. And that responsibility especially of larger companies, has fundamentally shifted that you are expected to play a role in society one way or another, whether you want to or not, that is the expectation of those large organizations now. And that, that expectation did not exist three, four, five years ago. Wow. It's almost like the pressure on celebrities, but they would just say something, but a corporation has to, again, you're saying it's not just the voice, it's the investment, it's the focus, it's the execution, the action. It's the intentionality about it, right? Which is like, you know, you can say lots of stuff, but are you actually doing the things that you say that matter to you? So not to get this confused with the chief purpose officer, I get that that's a focus of theirs, but I think what you're saying is, and what I'm hearing you say as a leader is if you're going to stand up to something, then put your, be, be prepared to put your money where your mouth is. Be prepared to think that through. And does that align with your company purpose and your values? And if it does, then it might make sense to really start pushing and, and, and lean into that and, and be intentional about that. Or am, am yeah, I getting it wrong? It, it, no, exactly right. And, and the chief purpose officer, they're there to help you do that. You know, and, and so that's a title at large companies. And you don't necessarily need to have that job at your company, but what you need is a way to think through where you get involved, why you're getting involved, and how do you get involved? I um, like the how. That's that. Then that's that's the where and the how is missing. You're right. It's just been boom. We support this. Okay. Now what? You know, like, geez, this this happened yesterday. You tweeted, 
yesterday and then this happened today and you did nothing about it or there was right. this opportunity to be great and support. Yeah, it's interesting. Right. I'll, I'll give you like a really, um, I'll leave the, the name of the company off uh, uh, in this example, but um, there was a state in the US that, uh, so this company, they, they just made a bunch of statements about um, uh, uh, supporting gender rights uh, of women. Uh, and then they said they wanted to uh, uh, expand in Texas. And then laws changed in Texas around access to fertility treatments for women. And again, I don't want to apply, uh, you know, is that law right or wrong? Like other people can have that conversation. But from an employee perspective, for some employees, he said, you really support gender rights. And now you're expanding in a state that at least some employees perceive as not supporting that. How do you navigate that? You know, like, do you take your business out of that state? Do you then make investments in some other place? Do you communicate why you're still going with the decision that you had? Those are super hard problems right. without any easy answer. Uh, and those are problems that require, like, you know, we started the conversation that the science and the art. Um, there's no science to answer those questions. That's all art. You cannot run a big financial model on how to answer that question. But you're right. But 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 just there. I mean, art is not objective; it's subjective. So it's also okay. very complex, right? I mean, I like the color blue. You don't like it. Yeah. I like yeah, a no, Picasso. Exactly. You hate it, right? I mean, this is. Uh, it, it, those are the types of questions that you've got going forward, though, right? Yeah, and but so you know, how, it's, do you, how do you answer that? And it's interesting. There, you know, look, there isn't one answer, but I, I will say. I think the theme is ignore it, you'll die. I.e., the company, you don't stand a chance. Lean into it, try your best, figure it out, discuss, you know, execute on what you really believe in. It's not going to be right all the time, but you'll move ahead. Is yeah. I think is the overarching theme here. Yeah, and, and you know, if if you're willing to engage in the conversation, even if you make mistakes, yeah, your employees will work with you, and your clients and your customers and your communities will work with you. If you're willing to learn and make progress, right? Um, nobody expects progress, to right? The, the first oh. time, or the second, or third, or fourth, or fifth, or sixth, or seventh time. But like, they want progress. They want improvement. They want direction. And and this is this is something that they expect uh, leaders to get involved in. And so, how do you do it in a way that has progress and direction? We had we had a guest on the podcast last week, and and they had done a bunch of uh, research with leaders. And one of these specific leaders said, you know, all they ask for their team, and I'll add this to the company now, is that they expect the progress for individuals is that everybody is 15% better than they were last year. And not just, I think as individuals too, not just in performance or performance was certainly part of that. But I think that the, the core, if you get that, then the, it nets up to the company and the company should be 15% better um, broadly. Well, look, I want to jump into quickly, Brian, and that was fabulous. I really enjoyed that part of the discussion, but let's talk really quickly about salaries are jumping. It's mm -hmm. a competitive market. From what you're seeing, how how do you compete in this in this landscape? It's tough, right? Yeah, it's super hard. Um, I've got a bagel shop. I had a bagel shop in my neighborhood. Uh, I don't know, six seven weeks ago, they had a sign out front that said, um, uh, "If you currently work in the food service industry, show us your paycheck. We'll take whatever you're paid. We'll pay you three dollars more per hour, and we'll hire you on the spot." Um, then about two weeks ago, they had a sign out front that said, um, uh, "We have to close because we don't have enough people that can work here." Right. And that, that's like my local neighborhood bagel shop. 
Um, but that reality is playing out across all roles across organizations. There's all sectors, all sectors. Yeah. And this war for talent is not your parents war for talent. Um, because previously when we've had like these hyper competitive moments in the labor market, they've tended to be very narrow within one geography or with one job, one function. This is playing out everywhere. The, um, blue collar, gray collar, white collar, like, like broadly. It. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what are you seeing? Tell, talk about some of the strategies. Yeah. How are people yeah. getting cutting through? What, what should the bagel shop done? Yeah. So, um, so there's a couple of things that we're seeing and kind of some decisions that you've got to make. Um, the, the decision that most companies can't make is just increase their salaries by 20% for everybody, because there's not a lot of companies that then can actually have a, a financial business model when you pay everybody 20% more than you were before. So that one largely is, a, is, is out. Uh, but there's a couple of things that you can do. Uh, one, you need to understand your own workforce and figure out are there jobs, functions, geographies, roles where the, the competition with talent is even more intense. And you have to size where your problems are and then be willing to create different differential pay outcomes for um, uh, those roles and, and proactively do it. And you won't have to do like the 20% increase, but if you do the 10% increase, uh, you're gonna likely be able to maintain a good chunk of those folks without having them quit. But there's even more creative things that we need to do and companies are gonna to have to start doing because we can't just compete on money. And you know what, what a lot of people have talked about in the previous years and previous wars, I was like, oh, we're gonna compete by like better development opportunities or better culture or those sorts of things. That helps when it's like a 5% difference in comp. When it's a 20% difference in comp, like that's like, 20% more comp buys a lot of development opportunities, you know, at, at another place. So the most innovative things that we're actually seeing is companies becoming radically flexible about time. Right. So um, uh, there's a couple of companies that we work with that are about to roll out new uh, strategies where they say, uh, historically, we've had like a 40-hour work week. We're not going to increase your pay by 10%, but we're going to decrease the number of hours that you work by you know, four hours a week, eight hours a week, and still pay you the same. Right. Uh, there's companies that are now saying, we're going to give you full benefits, but 60% uh, of pay for 60% of the time or other things like that. So one of the ways that you can really start to compete and change the whole uh, experience with employees is not with money, but with time. And how can you take different opportunities and adopt different strategies around time where you know, people are working less. And not only can you compete that way, but a ton of the neuroscience research, a ton of the productivity research essentially gets to that uh, after about 25 to 30 hours a week, employee productivity is actually quite low. And it's how do you get the most out of that 25 to 30 hours per week, rather than thinking people who are working 60 hours a week are the most productive. Well, it's interesting because one of our strategy on that, which we've been doing for a long time, is a thing called task mapping. And I think it's even more relevant today. And I think it, it buckles in with what you're talking about, which is, you know, look, Brian, if you were going to work for my company in any capacity, we give you the job description, the 10 items, you'll probably like, hopefully that's what attracted the job. 60%, 70, I think is hot, sure. but there's 30, 40 that you're just not going to like. And like going to a restaurant when you had a bad meal, you tell a thousand going to a restaurant, a good meal, you tell two or three. Right. And so we, as humans kind of focus on the things because those things that you don't like are the things that you procrastinate on. And then it, they get in your way on Friday as you're going to go do something like it's just all bad. It's a domino effect. And so 
we do this exercise called task mapping where people put their tasks on. And, and one of the functions um, of that is, Brian, do you, does that task give or drain your energy? Like, where is it? Does it like Marcus Buckingham talks about give or drain energy? We can use that language. I used to call love or hate. And I was like, that's a little aggressive, <laughs> but give or drain energy. And, and then, so the idea behind this is that we continue to either reshuffle tasks. So even if you're in HR and I'm accounting and I do the newsletter or whatever that is, we could trade because that's, this might actually give you energy. We'll trade off. And if we can't find it within the team, we'll go more broadly. The gig economy. I mean, every, hey, I post on Facebook, I need someone to paint my garage. I'm not going to do it. I suck at it. And so we started to think more broadly about that. And that's been helpful because if people can focus on what they're good in your results-driven organization, you should be in good shape. And that's been helpful to us, right? Is to really, let's, let's move those tasks away versus an employee has this job. An employee has this job. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're going to have to reinvent what work looks like. You know, I mean, when you when you step back and you ask yourself the question, like, why historically do we work eight thirty to five thirty Monday through Friday uh, in a in like in a particular place? And it's like, well, the reason why is when we started creating manufacturing locations, you know, back 150, 160 years ago, it's before we had electricity and lighting, and so we had to have people working together where there was light. Light. Wow. And like, that's why. And so, yeah, right. Like we're creatures of habit. It's like, well, that's what we did in 18, you know, 20. So like, why should we not do it in 2021? You know, like, that's why. Um, And we've had this like massive world's biggest ever pilot experiment in changing how we work. And we're just starting to see some of the ripple implications from it about where people work. But this question of when people work, what they work on, who they work with that's all going to be worked on and figured out across the next couple of years. And, and how do you bring different people in to assemble teams in the moment that aren't just based on repetitive tasks of what we don't work? Because those repetitive tasks are going to get automated away soon enough. That's right. But how do you assemble, disassemble, and reassemble different people and let them work on the things that make the most sense for them to work on when and where it makes the most sense for them to work on it? And we're, we are barely starting to go down this path of what work for the next 50 years is going to look like, but it's not going to look like we've had in the, the past 50. Yeah. Look, I'll, I'll wrap with this. We had a guest also, and this was an aha moment for me, um, Amy HR. And she said, um, she said, look, companies think of the old method was a career path. Now it's success path. That's very different. I want to live there. I want to get involved in this project success path in an organization is very different than a, the traditional career path. Right. I mean, you really have to get to know someone to it. You have to have a relationship and know what makes someone tick and what their goals are, not just in work. I want to work on this piece of the team. It might be outside work. I want to live in Switzerland. You have an office there. Mm-hmm. Um, Brian, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Uh, I, I really wanted to thank you for joining the show. And I'd love to have you back on. I mean, I feel like yeah, sure. we have more to talk about. And so uh, thanks for, for coming on today, Brian. I appreciate it. Love the conversation. Let's keep in touch. And I'm going to get you booked back on. I think uh, we'd love to continue down the path on some of these uh, yeah, some for of sure. these topics. Yeah. Thanks for having me more than willing to help out in any way that I can. Okay, Brian. Nice to meet you. Nice to talk to you. And uh, you have yourself a good weekend. Talk to you soon. For more information about Brian, please contact him on LinkedIn. For more information about our podcast or to join the Scaling Culture Masterclass waiting list, please go to scalingculture.org. And if you're enjoying the Scaling Culture podcast, please subscribe and share. We'll be back soon with another incredible guest.